place. For those of you who are here this morning offering your praise, offering your words of God's story, offering your prayers, awesome pattern of prayer that was followed this morning by our Lord, right? And filled in the blanks by Pat. Thank you. Um, and I just want to say before we get into this, um, I hope you're able to kind of grab a hold of the story you just heard, which was read so well by this couple. Um, because I want to spend the first few moments of our time together hearing what you heard before I tell you what I heard. Because <laughs> I think sometimes maybe what you heard is probably more important than what I heard. So I will say um, I... But it's almost, well, it is. It's a year since I, quote, unquote, retired from the pastor, uh, the church that I pastored in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. And since that time, I've been doing mostly this, filling in for pastor friends who are either going on vacation or just needed a break. And uh, personally and for my family, we have not been able to plug into a local church. I'm off doing other things on a Sunday morning like this. Um, this was good this morning. In fact, after the God stories, I, I'm ready to say, let's do the benediction and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> seriously, it was, it was that good. Um, but I'm humbled to be here. Um, part of my journey in retirement was, you know, I don't know about if you've ever been in that place of having to look for a church, but like, you have certain standards, you know, and no one ever meets my standards. <laughs> Um, and I was rebuked, I think, um, not saying that you all don't meet my standards because you really do, but it, it was, it was good to be here this morning to interact, uh, to see a, a congregation like you, a family, a, a, a church family preparing to bless a young man who's heading uh, off to do his thing at, uh, at Houghton. I mean, all those things are part of the family of God and it's exciting to see. So, um, I want to pray, and then uh, I will ask you the question, uh, what did you hear from John 4, 1 to 38? But let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge uh, that all the, the grace and forgiveness that is possible to be experienced comes to us even now this morning as we gather before you as the song we shared together, we come to the cross, that place of where you were broken, your body was broken for all of us, and your blood was poured out to forgive and to cleanse and to make us whole again. And uh, thank you, Father, for those experiences when we are aware, when your spirit has his way in our hearts, our minds, our attention, and we become just very aware of who you are, what you do, and what you are doing uh, for us in that moment. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your people. I ask that you would guide us in our conversation here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wasn't kidding. What did you just hear as you took in John 4, 1 to 38. 
What did you hear? What stood out to you? What grabbed your attention? What made, I, I heard the chuckles at a couple points. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's actually a loaded scenario, quite honestly, and we're going to dive into that a little bit today, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I was processing that on the way, which isn't in my message, uh, I was processing that, and like I've preached, Jesus sent him out two by two, we need to find a teammate and go, right? Just like Paul, right? That didn't happen here. Interesting, right? What else? Well, the story is not about the disciples. Um, they don't share things. They're not transparently behind the scenes. The story is not about <laughs> them. It's about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was wondering about hungry. I don't know. That's good because the disciples were on one wavelength, right? Um, you know, we were given an assignment, go get some food. We can't and he said he ate already. Right? And the hunger. And how does that hunger inside of you and I get, get fed? Great, great point. So you had your hand up too? Yeah, very good. Go ahead, Jackie. If you want to know Jesus, he will be there. Yeah. Hey, Jesus used them, so it must be okay, right? <laughs> yeah, really good, really good. Something struck me as, as Barb was sharing. Um, the Samaritan woman had a pretty powerful God story, huh? Like when she went and told it, like fresh, like a whole town goes, something's going down. Let's, let's go find out, right? That's a pretty powerful God story. Yeah, and this little... I, irony, I guess. Um, this is all before the cross. Wow. 
Actually, as we were singing that song, I thought to myself, that, that woman in particular, and maybe a bunch of the townspeople, but that woman, once she heard about what happened to Jesus, the one who did the work inside of her heart, I wonder what, what she thought. How did she process the crucifixion after all that she had been through? Yes, I think you had. Yeah. I like the fact that there is a contradiction. Yeah. Back and forth. Yes. It's like Jesus did not overload the woman. Yeah. Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite a model, let's say, of evangelism, if you will. Okay. Very good. Keep it. Keep it going. All right. Hopefully things will be triggered as, as I share a little bit more about uh, this story. Um, so I, I will give you my bias up front, and my bias is that I approach any interaction I read about in the Gospels through a triangular grid, <laughs> okay? Hopefully you're kind of aware of that triangle, but um, I firmly believe that Jesus lived his everyday up and down, in and out life by perfectly balancing, prioritizing, and pursuing three key relationships. His connection with the Father, his connection with his family, biblical word household or oikos, and his purposeful seeking of opportunities to connect with those far from both of the other two father and the family you might be familiar with the that lifestyle grid the triangle in the form of an equilateral triangle the, the labels that we're used to are up in and out up for the father in with our family and out to those who are outside beyond this particular story has some hints of up and of in but it's primarily an example of how Jesus sought an opportunity to connect with someone far from his father and far from his family. The out part of the triangle, Jesus' mission. Let's call this story an example of the mission of Jesus. And in John 4, we have a very clear example of how Jesus went about this mission by examining his example, I believe that we can draw some extremely helpful directions and applications to challenge us to go on mission as well. Because if Jesus was a missionary and I am following Jesus, say it with me, I'm a missionary. Yeah. So there's four things I believe we can learn from this story. A lot more, but I've chosen four to focus on this morning with you. Okay, number one, Jesus willingly left his comfort zone. Jesus crossed numerous boundaries in the interaction and even before and after the interaction. Jesus lovingly challenged this, and I'll use the word acquaintance, okay? And Jesus was not completely understood. Number one, Jesus willingly left his comfort zone. How did Jesus leave his comfort zone? So much of this story must be prefaced by reminding ourselves that Jesus was a man. He was a human being. 
And though we as Bible-believing evangelical Christians know that he was also God, we must always balance our observations of the work, ways, and wisdom, his lifestyle in the Gospels, his, his life, the life of Jesus of Nazareth, with the awareness that he had come to earth in the form of a baby, not as an angelic being. He grew as a child, as uh, Luke tells us, in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man. He grew. There was a maturity. He matured into adulthood. And we must take the scriptures seriously as we find them. Paul recording that whole event in Philippians 2, 6 to 8, that Jesus emptied out of himself all aspects of deity for that time on earth. He, in the words of Paul, made himself nothing, being made in human likeness. So one of the things that has, uh, in my own thinking and life in the last few years, has endeared me even more to this amazing Savior of ours is coming to grips with his full humanity. And in his full humanity, to realize that from birth, he was surrounded by a culture, a society, and a religion that at least in its official stance viewed all non-Jews as lesser beings. And in particular, viewed Samaritans as less than human. And if this was the cultural exposure for anyone in the first century Judea, it would have been the same environment that Jesus was exposed to. So when we read that quote, verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria, I want you to be aware that was a choice. Jesus had other options, more strenuous routes he could have taken to get back to Galilee because he was in the south, he was heading north to Galilee. Jesus chose to take the direct route to Galilee through a forbidden territory. A deeply religious Jew at this time would not have taken this route because of a strongly held prejudice. But Jesus chose otherwise. He chose to go out of his comfort zone. He chose to travel by a different route. The reason he had to go through Samaria was not because of, it was the shortcut. He chose to go that way, even though everything around him, maybe even everyone around him said we shouldn't do that. I have found that in order to be a missionary to people, I have not yet encountered, I need to choose different routes to travel, different places to eat. Different places to shop, different social outlets than the ones I've grown accustomed to and feel comfortable attending myself. Perhaps in order for you to go on mission to people far from the Father, you may need to go to places outside of your normal comfort zone, just like Jesus. Number two, Jesus crossed numerous boundaries. So once Jesus intentionally chose to travel by a different road, literally, okay, he also opened himself to some very different and challenging relationship connections. Again, straight from chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, especially in the 
parenthetical comments that are made by the gospel writer, which is unique. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, first words, at least recorded, not a statement, an invitational question. I have a need, didn't say that, but what he did say was, will, will you give me something to drink? First interaction. Parentheses. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Okay, now that we got that straight, right? How can you ask me for a drink? Parenthetical comment. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus asked for help. A man asking a woman, boundary breaker. A Jewish person asking a Samaritan, second boundary broken. Now, if you have an NIV translation, you can even see that at the bottom of the page, there's a little footnote for that verse. It says, could be translated, do not use dishes Samaritans have used. That's not talking about they took dirty dishes and used them. They're talking about they won't eat, they won't even sit down to have a meal with these people. That's what it's meant. A very clear indication, not of their use of unwashed china or silverware, but of a total avoidance of interacting on any level with the Samaritan. A very strong boundary line not to be crossed especially in a, any form of eating or interacting over food and drink. So Jesus asked for some water, and by default, the use of her dipping cup. Jesus, the missionary, willingly, intentionally, perhaps even blatantly disregarding certain well-established customs, crossed the line of normal behavior and customs for the sake of connecting with someone he perceived as far from his father and his extended family. If Jesus was a missionary willing to cross over well-established boundaries, and I am a follower of Jesus, I must be willing to cross over well-established boundaries to connect with someone I perceive to be far from the father and the father's family. There's a lot more we could talk about the the racial tensions, the tradition-bolstered attitudes, the bad experiences of history between the Jews and the Samaritans, and even the well-established systems which would cause a good legal law-following Jew to not even ever have to be in that position. And before I go any further, I just want to say this. I am in no way standing before you this morning as an expert at this stuff. This message is as challenging for me to share as it is for all of us to hear. You don't want to be inside of my brain earlier this week when after I got excited about the topic and started putting these things together, all the things that were going, yeah, but you're not really doing that. You're not crossing back. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not. I'm not an expert. I am trying to follow Jesus in this, though. Somehow, 
somehow he's calling us to do the same. Number three, and, and I loved Barb's story because we're going to dovetail that in here. Jesus lovingly challenged this acquaintance. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Here we get a sense of Jesus' confidence in who he was. Jesus' confidence in who his father was, who had sent him there. And what his father can do for anyone. Once again, I caution all of us to guard against the deity card here, playing that deity card. Oh, Jesus was, he was God. Okay, hold on. If only Jesus as God could have thought, spoken, and acted in ways to persuade this woman, then this whole story is reduced to another miracle of God passage and honestly has next to no value other than inspiration for us as followers. But if Jesus was fully human, yet fully relying on his father, then this story has everything to say to everyday humans like you and me. Do you have such confidence when speaking with others? Do you know who you are because of God's presence in and through you and who he is above, around, in spite of, yet also in you? Somehow, in this encounter, which seems to have, at least in the Bible, only taken about 15 minutes or so, yet probably took much longer, Jesus was able to discern his relational equity with this woman. He was able to discern some of her deepest struggles and needs and was able, willing, and confident enough to address her deepest needs right then and there. Again, let's leave the deity card aside. Jesus didn't have x-ray vision to look into this person's heart. How did he discover those needs? It was brought up earlier through the conversation that he had, through the questions that he asked, the statements that he made. Jesus gets specific. Jesus does not dance around her issues. He actually just names them. He is not harsh. He is not inconsiderate, but he is also not laissez-faire. He was a master at balancing invitation to draw near for the gift and the giving of the gift. And he balanced that with his challenge to the very heart of this woman to be real, to be honest, and get to the point of her actually wanting to change. As a result, she experiences some type of spiritual breakthrough. Number four, this gets a little more in, inside, inside the, the psychology of following Jesus. Jesus was not completely understood. Even by his closest friends, clearly the 12 did not understand. That's kind of what brought about the chuckles in the reading of the scripture earlier. In fact, some of them would take years to understand 
Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, says Jesus, verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' closest friends and discipleship trainees did not understand what had just happened. Not only did some not get it that day, it would take some of them years to fully understand. Specifically, noted in the book of Acts, Peter's experience prior to his mission to the Roman Cornelius and his household in Acts 10 tells us the story of the the barriers internally, the mental barriers that had to come crashing down inside of Peter's brain before he understood, I need to go to this Gentile, this Cornelius, and I need to feel okay about it. And it's likely that was up to 10 years later after this incident. I think that we as disciples of Jesus, even today, must be ready for non-acceptance even among our Christian friends when we're led to when we're led by Jesus to leave our comfort zone, to cross over traditionally accepted boundaries, and to lovingly challenge those who are far from the Father. This week, I found this story of an amazing woman from India. Her name, Ramabai Dangar. I probably butchered her last name. But she was born in 1858. I chose to share this woman's story because the focus of Jesus' mission in John 4 was a woman. Ramabai, like the Samaritan, ended up influencing many. And in a week where we have seen another historic milestone in our country, the power and influence of God using a woman to make a difference is extraordinary. Her father was a dedicated Hindu who defied the conventions of his time by teaching his daughter to read Sanskrit. The family lived like pilgrims. They would read Sanskrit manuscripts in public places so that people could hear the stories of the gods. Tragically, When famine struck in India in 1876, Ramabai lost her father, her mother, and her sister to starvation. She and her brother continued their life, continuing on what they learned as pilgrims, but Ramabai became increasingly dissatisfied with what she read in the Hindu scriptures and the inequality she saw between castes and between men and women in her society. At 20 years old, Ramabai became the first Indian woman to be granted the the title Pandita, or learned master, in recognition of her ability as a Sanskrit scholar, and at age 22, she married and moved to Silkar. While living there, Pandita Ramabai came across a Bengali translation of Luke's gospel and began to read it with interest. In 1883, she took the opportunity to travel to England in the hope of a medical education. Though sadly she was unable to study medicine, she was able to learn much more about the Christian faith. Pandita Ramabai was deeply impacted by the work of the Sisters of the Cross who cared for fallen women. She had never seen such kindness extended to women of a similar situation in her own home country of India. Moved by a faith that gives hope to the most vulnerable and by a savior who lifts up the downtrodden, she decided to be baptized. Over the following eight years, Pandita Ramabai traveled the United uh, United Kingdom and the United States, teaching, learning about Christianity, and studying the Bible. In her autobiography, she writes, One thing I knew by this time, I 
needed Christ and not merely his religion. The Bible says that God does not wait for me to merit his love, but heaps it upon me without my deserving it. It also says that there is neither male nor female in Christ. How good, how indescribably good. What good news for me, a woman, a woman born in India among Brahmins who hold out no hope for me and the like of me. The Bible declares that Christ did not reserve this great salvation for a particular caste or gender. During her time in the United States, Pandita Ramabai's thoughts and prayers were turned back towards her home country of India. She wrote, I questioned in my mind over and over again why some missionaries did not come forward to found faith missions in India. And then the Lord said to me, why don't you? Why don't you begin to do this for yourself instead of wishing for others to do it? How easy it is for anyone to wish that someone else would do a difficult thing instead of doing it themselves. I was greatly rebuked by the still small voice which spoke to me. Pandita Ramabai took God's challenge seriously. In 1889, she returned to India and founded Mukti Mission, trusting God for all that she needed. She founded a school for women in Bombay, now Mumbai, and then moved to Pune. As well as advocating for the rights of women, Pandita Ramabai began a home that grew to serve and educate over 1,500 people. The Pandita Ramabai Mukti Mission still exists today, providing to women and children, regardless of their caste, creed, religion, or status. I just want to simply share really what are the concluding words of this passage as Jesus spoke to his 12 in John 4. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Before I read the last sentence, my understanding is, according to some commentators, that the typical everyday garb of a Samaritan was a white robe. It is believed that as Jesus was saying, open your eyes, look at the harvest, is when the crowds of people led by the Samaritan woman were starting to come outside of town to the well where she had had the encounter. And Jesus is asking his disciples to look at the white-robed harvest coming their way. Wow. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. I would plead with you this morning, open up, open your eyes, open your heart, open your mind, open your schedule. Open your checkbook. Open your, your front door. <laughs> Out of the comfort zone and become a missionary. And as a disciple of Jesus, bring your three priority relationships in line with his. That equilateral triangle where equal time to each of the three priority relationships is given. Time with the father. Time with his family. Equal time those who are far from the Father and his family. God help us.